Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, a potential U-turn on the border. President Biden considering borrowing a page from former President Trump to tackle the border crisis. Could we see a 180 on border policy and why Republicans say it's an election year gimmick? Iris Tao at the White House. Three Alabama clinics are pausing in vitro fertilization after the ruling that embryos outside of the womb are children. How are political candidates reacting? In New York, a state judge denies a request from Trump defendants for a delay in paying their fines, saying they failed to explain why the delay was necessary. Our legal correspondent explains why the defendants requested more time. An inside look at the inner workings of China's global hacking efforts. Leaked documents reportedly show how Beijing works with private hackers to get intelligence of foreign governments. Who are the victims? Conservative leaders, activists and public officials gathering at the nation's capital with CPAC 2024 kicking off today. Jack Bradley bringing in the latest for us. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Don Ma filling in for Tiffany Meyer. There are now three clinics in Alabama halting in vitro fertilization treatments. This after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children. The case began when three couples had frozen embryos destroyed in an accident at a fertility clinic. The Alabama justices ruled that the couples could sue over the death of a minor child, even for unborn children, quote, regardless of their location. The issue is highlighting the divide between political candidates. President Biden calling the ruling unacceptable and tying it to his promise to make abortion access the law for the whole country. Nikki Haley, meanwhile, said embryos to me are babies, but she also clarified that, quote, you don't want to take those fertility treatments away from women. A Pew Research Center survey last September found that among all women ages 15 to 44, just over 1% reported using artificial insemination or in vitro fertilization. And we have more updates on the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. His mother is accusing Russian authorities of wanting a secret funeral. The mother said on social media that authorities are blackmailing her to accept a secret burial for Navalny. This would potentially prevent public mourning for the opposition leader. She says she was brought to a morgue and saw Navalny's body. The mother accused authorities of setting conditions for where, when, and how Navalny should be buried, but refused, adding that they're now threatening to do something with Navalny's body. NTD couldn't independently verify her allegations. Navalny died last week while serving a prison sentence at an Arctic penal colony. Russian authorities say Navalny died of natural causes, but his widow says she believes Navalny was killed. Today, President Biden met with Navalny's widow and daughter in San Francisco. Biden voiced his condolences to the family and said he will announce sanctions against Russia on Friday. Amid an escalating border crisis, President Biden now reportedly considering the Trump-era policies he ran against. 
But Republicans question why he didn't do so during the past three years. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. President Biden might take executive action to unilaterally without Congress and crack down on illegal crossings at the southern border. And that's according to multiple reports saying that President Biden could cite illegal authority used by Trump before known as 212F to make it harder for migrants to seek asylum. But the possible U-turn here comes after President Biden in just the past month said he had done everything he could using executive authority, adding that Trump is the one to blame for the border crisis. Watch. Give me the power. I've asked for the very day I got in office. Give me the border patrol. But the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. While the White House says no final decision has been made on any executive actions, Biden is already feeling the heat from both sides. House Speaker Johnson on Thursday called Biden's possible executive action election year gimmicks, adding that it proves that Biden could have acted much sooner. Meanwhile, Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, among others, called Biden's reported plan to restrict asylum outrageous, adding, quote, doing Trump impressions isn't how we beat Trump. Aside from political pressure, Biden's reported plan could also encounter legal challenges like Trump's did back in 2018. And the White House, aside from saying that no final decision has been made, also says in a statement that no executive action, no matter how aggressive, can deliver the significant policy reforms that Congress can and Republicans rejected. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. After efforts by Texas to stop illegal immigration, more people are now entering through California. And border officials say spies linked to the Chinese regime might be among them. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. The San Diego border is experiencing an increase in illegal immigration. The chief of the U.S. Border Patrol revealed that in fiscal year 24 so far, the San Diego sector has made over 140,000 apprehensions, with over 20,000 of them being from China. That's a more than 500% increase compared to last fiscal year to date. The head of the Border Patrol Union recently said some of those people may be spies working on behalf of China's communist regime to infiltrate the United States. And in related news, the Biden administration paroled over 2,500 immigrants after Title 42 expired last year. The Washington Times now reports that out of those, less than 1% have been deported. A former immigration judge recently told Congress that it's extremely difficult to deport immigrants, even violent ones. I could not substantiate that a single individual that I had entered an order of removal against had actually been removed by this administration. Everything from, you know, simple shoplifting to more serious things like drug trafficking and murder. And lastly, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker held his State of the State address. He's calling for $182 million to support migrants and illegal immigrants. I will not join the chorus of people in this country or in this chamber who eagerly look to slam shut an immigration door that was once open to our ancestors. A Republican state representative responded, saying you can't literally invite people to come here with this insane sanctuary state policy and then complain that we don't have the resources when they arrive. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Congress is out of session, but the clock is still ticking on government spending. House Republicans in the Freedom Caucus are setting the stage to secure spending cuts and policy wins on abortion the border, and more. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more on the looming spending showdown. 
Lawmakers will return to D.C. next week with just three days on the legislative calendar to yet again avoid a government shutdown. This is because the divided Congress has failed to secure a full year budget, instead relying on three consecutive short-term funding bills just to keep the lights on. But with the March 1st deadline fast approaching, spending caucus are already making their demands loud and clear. The conservative-led House Freedom Caucus wrote to Speaker Mike Johnson laying out a number of must-haves in the budget, such as eliminating the salary of DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, scrapping the Pentagon's abortion travel policy, defunding taxpayer funds for gender transition surgeries, and more. If the group can't secure these wins, they say they'll settle for a full year temporary government funding plan. But this would trigger a 1% spending cut across the board because that is the deal that President Biden made with Congress just last year. Democrats, however, are likely to reject this, putting House Speaker Mike Johnson in a tight spot to avoid a government shutdown. Additionally, Speaker Johnson is under pressure to act on the foreign aid package. One Democrat, Josh Gottheimer, even going so far as to circulate a resolution to try to protect Speaker Johnson from his own party ousting him in hopes that he'll put this foreign aid package on the floor. But for this plan to work out, the majority of lawmakers in the House will need to be on board. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And Judge Arthur Ngoron today denied a request from the defendants in former President Trump's civil fraud case to delay the enforcement of penalties. This includes Trump's $355 million fine and the temporary ban on operating a business in New York. We turn now to our legal correspondent Arlene Richards for more details. Now, Arlene, what are some of the reasons that the defendants gave for the request? Well, to be clear, President Trump's attorney wasn't the one who filed the request. It was actually the attorney for his two sons that filed it. And what they said was that Attorney General Letitia James was rushing the enforcement of this order. They said that she filed a, a draft order on Tuesday and that they didn't get a chance to file their own counter order. And as well, what was uh, the judge's initial response uh, to the request? So the judge actually did grant their request to submit a, a counter order, but their response to that was to say that Letitia James had actually um, skipped over a few steps that she was supposed to do in a situation like this. And so they asked the judge if he's inclined to sign the order to actually give them uh, another 30 days, a 30-day extension on their uh, responding to the fine. Now, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I thought the defendants already had 30 days to pay the fines. So how would granting this request change that? Well, that's true. When the judge signs the order, at the, from the time that he signs the order, they have 30 days within which to pay the fine or post the bond if they're planning to appeal. But what they asked for on Wednesday was that he actually wait 30 days before he signed the order, which essentially would have given them 60 days. Now, Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, has said that he has lots of cash and that he can easily pay this. Meanwhile, Letitia James is saying, if you can't pay the cash, then I'm going to ask the judge to seize your assets. So. In that case, um, they're saying that it's not clear if there's a strategy here. It's not clear whether or not they have a strategy to try and get more time to prepare their appeal or whether it's that they are genuinely concerned about paying the funds. All right, Arlene, thank you very much for that. Thank you. And coming up, newly leaked documents show the extent of China's state surveillance operations. Our guest says the Chinese regime could use hacked information in many ways. 
tens of thousands of cell phone users hitting signal issues today. Why were people having problems placing calls as well as sending text messages? Three gunmen opened fire on slow-moving traffic east of Jerusalem, and an alleged United Nations employee has been accused of participating in the October 7th massacre. Jason Perry brings us the details when we come back. Two Republican candidates left in a high-stakes race you don't want to miss. Watch it with us in the action and at the Data Hub on The Nation Decides 2024, the South Carolina primary with Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer. Live on February 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern on NTD News. A rare glimpse into China's global hacking campaign, from Taiwan's road mapping data to details on Thailand's foreign ministry. Allegedly leaked documents show the Chinese regime is working with private hackers to obtain sensitive information on foreign governments. The leaked documents were posted on GitHub last week. They come up from a Chinese security firm called iSoon. Isun works for Chinese military and intelligence agencies. That includes over 50 police agencies across China and dozens of other state-owned companies and state agencies. The leak contained more than 570 files, images, and chat logs. The files detail contracts spanning eight years. At least 20 foreign governments are on the target list, including the UK, India, South Korea, Thailand, and Malaysia. Chinese dissidents are also being tracked, including those in Hong Kong or the heavily Muslim region of Xinjiang. The documents reveal in detail the methods and tools used by Chinese authorities to hack other countries and promote pro-Beijing rhetoric on social media. Other tools include devices disguised as power outlets and batteries that can be used to hack into Wi-Fi networks. One cybersecurity analyst is calling this the most significant leak ever linked to China's surveillance operations. Joining me now to discuss the leaked documents is retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. He's the former senior director of strategic planning for the White House National Security Council. General Spaulding, thanks for being here with me. Uh, first question I want to ask you is, are we learning about uh, the Chinese regime's surveillance operations now that we didn't know before? Well, I don't think I'm surprised. You know, the Chinese Communist Party uses this methodology to attack the free world. Uh, their biggest uh, you know, enemy is the United States. And they have enormous resources. They have a lot of people and a lot of money. And, you know, instead of spending it, while they do have a pretty significant military budget, most of their budget is going to use, uh, you know, technologies like this operations like this to undermine the United States from within using these tools. You know, and we, we don't really do a good job of defending ourselves. And we actually don't really emphasize those capabilities as opposed to the more, you know, kinetic ones like fighter planes and uh, aircraft carriers. So it's just a different way of looking at the world. And I think the Chinese Communist Party, quite frankly, does a better job. Now, one company uh, came out in this uh, leaked document. It's called iSoon. Uh, it's a private security firm based in Shanghai that has ties to the China's uh, top policing agency and military groups. Now, according to the New York Times, they're just one of hundreds of companies that reportedly uh, support state-sponsored hacking efforts. How big of an operation uh, is this, do you think, on a national scale? Well, as you know, the Chinese Communist Party has a role to play in every large Chinese company. 
you know, by law, you're required to have a Chinese Communist Party board and Chinese Communist Party members in the corporation. And of course, the corporation is responsible for to the Chinese Communist Party to provide support for these kinds of operations. So they use their entire corporate and financial sector and academia and their entire citizenry by law as proxies for these types of efforts. And Isun was reportedly contracted uh, to extract data from at least 20 foreign governments. Uh, according to the leaked documents, they have uh, appeared to have successfully breached immigration data from India, cell phone data from South Korea, and, and road mapping data from Taiwan. Uh, I'm just wondering, how could China use these kinds of information? Well, it's very easy to basically tie an individual to their cell phone data and then to begin to track that person. And then in particular, whether it, it be for government espionage or commercial espionage, then they can start to find out who are they meeting with, what are they doing. Again, the other information can be used for targeting data, you know, whether that be for using, you know, bombs, but it can also be, you know, deciding how to attack digital infrastructure. Where would we send maybe people to try to put plant bugs or otherwise sabotage, you know, cell phone towers or, you know, electrical grid components. So this is something that, you know, it allows the, you know, the Chinese Communist Party to really operationalize all this information and then turn it over to their to their proxies who are acting in their behalf. So final question, with all this information now out in the public, uh, what kind of response can we expect from China after this? Well, they're just going to continue to do uh, what they do. And I think this is why I've called for such a long time for us to decouple from China. Don't let them have access to our society because, quite frankly, they use our openness against us. All right, General Swalding, thanks for your insight today. Thank you. Democrats and Republicans on the House Select China Committee are in Taiwan today, meeting with Taiwan's president and other officials. A main point of the meeting is to emphasize solid U.S. support for the island. Chairman of the Select Committee Mike Gallagher says now more than ever, free minds must stand firm together in vigilance to reject the Chinese Communist Party's aggression in Taiwan and abroad. Here's Gallagher. Free people don't need a dictator to tell them what to think. They know the truth. They see the Chinese Communist Party for what it is. This is about what kind of world we want to live in, and they're standing up for what's right. The United States, Democrats and Republicans, stands with Taiwan for your freedom and for ours. Taiwan has faced increasing aggression from the Chinese regime in recent years and has lashed out when U.S. lawmakers visit the island. Despite the threatening behavior, Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen has not bowed. Instead, today she's saying she's eager for more U.S.-Taiwan meetings this year. Part of the goal in strengthening relations, aside from firming up opposition to the Chinese regime, is to work on global supply chain resilience and other trade and investment opportunities. Tens of thousands coast-to-coast coast woke up today finding error messages with their cell phone service, meaning no calls, no texting, and in some major cities, no ability to dial 911. As of this afternoon, AT&T said it had restored service to all affected customers and sent out a statement apologizing to its network users. The Federal Communications Commission still is investigating the exact cause of the outages. Here's more.
Downdetector.com was a popular website across the country Thursday as it monitored a widespread national outage impacting a number of wireless carriers, with the most occurring on AT&T's network. Some users report waking up to SOS messages. Others had no connection at all, no ability to make calls, send or receive texts, and in several southeastern states on the AT&T network, 911 service was temporarily unavailable over the past two days. The company telling CNN it was working urgently throughout the day to restore service to its customers, encouraging them to use Wi-Fi calling until then. The highest number of AT&T outages were reported across the Midwest, Southeast, and in Texas, according to downdetector.com. Customers also reported some outages on other major carriers like T-Mobile and Verizon. Although T-Mobile tells CNN they did not experience an outage and are operating normally. But at one point Thursday morning, downdetector.com showed just under 2,000 outages reported on T-Mobile's network. Verizon also said it was operating normally after peaking at just over 4,000 outages in the morning. As for the why it happened, a wireless industry source says for now, there's no indication that it was a cyber attack or other malicious activity. Public safety experts say wireless network outages often occur for mundane reasons, like construction-related digging or software issues. This morning, as Israeli citizens were caught in slow-moving traffic, three gunmen opened fire on people inside their cars. This comes as an alleged United Nations employee was seen in a video participating in the October 7th massacre. NTD's Jason Perry has the war update and a warning. This report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Three gunmen east of Jerusalem in the West Bank opened fire on people driving in slow-moving traffic on Thursday morning. According to police, the terrorist killed one person and injured at least eight, including a pregnant woman, and they were transported to a hospital. Security forces in the area, including a policeman who was on his way to work, responded to the attack and killed two of the gunmen. The third gunman fled the scene, but was later detained after officials searched the area. We're in a time of war and our level of readiness is heightened and the Israel police and border police are going to do whatever it takes to defend our civilians, to defend our home. Tensions have been high in Israel since the massacre of October 7th. In this disturbing video taken on that tragic day, an alleged employee of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, is wearing all black and he helps put the body of a deceased Israeli man into the back of this vehicle. The mother of the deceased man spoke at a news conference on Wednesday. Are there any other hostages held by UN employees, even as we're speaking right now? Where is my son? We reached out to UNRWA for comment and they told NTD there is an investigation underway and that Israeli authorities have not presented UNRWA with any evidence. This comes as Israeli officials have criticized the United Nations for not addressing reports of the sexual violence that took place during the massacre of October 7th. The Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel released a report on Wednesday which alleges systematic sexual abuse during that terrorist attack. What we learned, that this was an intentional way of behavior. In all of the crime scenes, in all of the terrorist scenes that have happened, the systematic abuse, sadistic abuse, brutal abuse of women, 
children and men happened. And on Thursday, Israel's prime minister visited troops in northern Israel. He said their goal is to return the displaced Israelis to their homes in the north. In order to bring back the residents, we need to bring back the feeling of security. We will achieve it in one of two ways by military means, if required, in a political way, if possible. But in any case, Hezbollah should understand we will restore security. Across Israel's northern border in Lebanon, more than 200 people, most of them Hezbollah terrorists, have been killed since the fighting began after October 7th. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, this year's CPAC kicks off with conservative leaders, activists, and public officials gathering at the nation's capital. Jack Bradley is standing by in D.C. with a live report for us. A controversial New York City law that would have allowed non-citizens to vote in local elections struck down. What an appeals court had to say about it. A prosecutor won't extradite a murder suspect from Arizona to New York. Find out the reason behind the decision. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A third fertility clinic in Alabama has now halted in vitro fertilization treatments. This came days after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children. The mother of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny alleged that authorities are pressuring her to accept a secret burial. At around the same time, President Biden met with Navalny's widow and daughter and offered his condolences. Multiple reports said President Biden could soon issue an executive order on illegal immigration. Biden could cite a legal authority used by former President Trump to make it harder for immigrants to seek asylum. New York Judge Arthur Ngoron denied a request from Trump defendants to delay enforcement of their fines in the civil fraud case. The attorney for Trump's two adult sons filed the request, arguing that New York Attorney General Letitia James is rushing the enforcement. This year's Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, kicking off today with prominent figures like former President Trump and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem slated to address crowds over the four-day event. The event is streaming live on our website at NTD.com. NTD's Jack Bradley is there now with a live report for us. Jack, what's been the focus so far on day one? Yeah, so uh, I'm here at CPAC where thousands are gathering here just outside of D.C. to listen to conservative thought leaders and activists about issues that matter most to them. Now, those issues include energy and immigration is a huge one, but everything relates to the 2024 election. Um, we heard from many conservative thought leaders today. Let's listen to some of that now. Our justice system has been weaponized against the administration's top political competitor with absurd witch hunts from every corner of the country. It reminds me of the old Soviet slogan, you show me the man and I will find you the crime. If we want to compete and win, we must embrace early voting. The days of waiting until election day to vote are over. We have to encourage 
everyone who can legally vote to go do so as soon as they legally can. We need so many votes banked for Donald J. Trump that we're not playing catch up on election day. Now, many, many other activists and, and um, conservative leaders are going to be speaking here at CPAC over the course of the next few days here. On Saturday, everyone's looking forward to Donald Trump speaking. It's the same day as the South Carolina primary, where he's leading Nikki Haley in the polls by a wide margin. Now, Nikki Haley was a headliner here at CPAC last year. This year, no show. Now, we have a lot to look forward to. Many other conservative activists are going to be speaking here, including potential running mates that Trump has mentioned, including Christy Nome, uh, J.D. Vance, Elise Stefanik, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, many others. And now we have a lot to look forward to. Up until Saturday, we'll be here to bring you the latest. Don, back to you. All right, thanks for filling us in, Jack. And a Quinnipiac University poll shows President Biden narrowly leading Trump in a November rematch. But... Voters are concerned about Biden's age. 49% of voters polled in favor of Biden in the upcoming election, while 47% support Trump. 67% of voters say Biden is too old for a second term in office, while 57% say Trump is not too old to serve again. 34% believe Biden is mentally fit, compared to 48% who believe Trump is mentally fit. The poll surveyed over 1,400 registered voters nationwide last week. With the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD News will be covering all the action. We'll have a lot prepared for you, including special guests on the ground coverage and the data hub. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024 live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. A New York appeals court struck down a law yesterday that would have let certain non-citizens vote in local elections, including those for mayor and city council. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the court's decision. A state appeals court declared the law unconstitutional. The Our City, Our Vote law says that anyone with a green card or work authorization who has been in the city for at least 30 days can vote in municipal elections. It was first passed in December 2021 by the Democrat-controlled New York City Council. It would have resulted in around 800,000 newly eligible voters in a city with less than 5 million active registered voters. Progressive Democrats who championed the law argued it would make U.S. politics more inclusive by allowing immigrants without citizenship to vote. Opponents of the bill, mainly New York Republicans, argued it would undermine the integrity of elections and dilute the power of U.S. citizens' votes. Republican Congressman Nick Langworthy and a handful of other plaintiffs challenged the law in court in 2022. Months later, it was struck down. Judge Ralph Porzio of the New York State Supreme Court for Staten Island ruled that the law violated the state constitution, which states that every citizen is entitled to vote. New York City Mayor Eric Adams' administration defended the law and appealed the lower court ruling. Wednesday's appeals court decision has dealt a blow to those efforts. It's unclear whether Mayor Adams' office intends to file an appeal. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. An Arizona prosecutor says she won't extradite a New York City hotel murder suspect, citing concerns over Manhattan DA's handling of violent offenders. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the story. 
Rod Almansuri, 26, is a suspect in the killing of Denise Olias Oransabia, 38, who was found dead next to a broken iron in her room at the Soho 54 Hotel in Manhattan on February 8th. Almansuri was then arrested 10 days later in Scottsdale, Arizona. On Sunday, February 18th, at about 8.27 hours, officers responded to the McDonald's at 15525 West Greenway Road in reference to a female victim been attacked and sustained stab wounds to her neck. A stolen vehicle soon was found near Scottsdale Fashion Square Mall. The occupant matched the description of the outstanding suspect and was identified as Rod Almansuri. Almansuri admitted to his involvement in the Surprise City incident, as well as another stabbing that occurred in Phoenix on February 17th. While originally speaking with Almansori, he also admitted to committing a homicide in New York with, uh, prior to fleeing to Arizona. New York PD will be seeking a, a warrant and is in the process of getting an arrest warrant and it, working out extradition with our county attorney. However, Maricopa County Attorney Rachel Mitchell said, We will not be agreeing to extradition. I've instructed my extradition attorneys not to agree to that. We're going to keep him here. These are mandatory prison sentences. She goes on to say, and Having observed uh, the treatment of violent criminals in the New York area by the Manhattan DA there, Alvin Bragg, I think it's safer to keep him here and keep him in custody. Emily Tuttle, a representative for Bragg, told reporters, It's deeply disturbing that Mitchell is playing political games in a murder investigation. The Arizona prosecutor's actions are offensive to the NYPD and all of our law enforcement partners. Alman Suri is being held without bail in Arizona, where he's been accused of stabbing two women. Christina Corona, NTD News. In Texas, a judge has ruled that school districts can limit the length of a student's hair. The lawsuit came from Daryl George, a high school student who sued the Barbers Hill Independent School District. George was suspended for seven months over the length of his locks hairstyle. The school district said he violated the dress code. A Texas law, which recently went into effect, protects against hairstyle discrimination associated with race or culture. The judge ruled today that the law doesn't apply to the length of hair. And in higher education, Yale University is reintroducing standardized test scores as a requirement in admissions starting in 2025. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the Ivy League school made standardized test scores optional. But in an announcement today, Yale said that policy might have hurt some students, specifically those from lower-income families. Yale says test scores actually benefit students from low-resource schools when they apply as it gives them admissions officers additional evidence of a student's readiness. The head of undergraduate admissions said test scores are the single greatest predictor of a student's performance in Yale. Forever underemployed, a new study says half of college grads never use their degrees. An expert tells us why that's not always a bad thing. And in sports history, it was 44 years ago today that the U.S. upset Russia's hockey team. In the Miracle on Ice, Dave Martin joins us to explain the shocking victory when we return.
The U.S. is back on the moon after more than 50 years. The Odysseus unmanned spacecraft touched down on the surface of the moon just moments ago. Is our team of intuitive machines, mechanics, and their families, their friends, Intuitive Machines is a private so company much. based in Houston, Texas. The Odysseus is part of their IM-1 lunar mission. This marks the first controlled moon landing for the U.S. since the Apollo 17 mission in 1972. It's also the very first commercial landing on the moon. Intuitive Machines has the backing of NASA on this mission. The robot lander is carrying a suite of scientific instruments and technology demonstrations for NASA. It will focus on collecting data on space weather interactions with the moon's surface and other data of the lunar environment. NASA hopes the data will help with their future missions to the moon later this decade. Half of college grads never use their degrees. A new study shows many of them remain underemployed for a decade. In today's Virginia Gibson has more. Half of college graduates aren't using their degrees, according to a new study from the Burning Glass Institute. And the underemployment is sticky. Out of the 10 million people studied, the vast majority who start out underemployed never use their degree for an entire decade. That first job is critical, the study finds. Graduates who use their degrees in their first job are far more likely to continue using them. The most important factor determining a person's career, what subject he or she studied. Degrees that involve quantitative reasoning had the lowest underemployment rates. Degrees in public safety and security had the highest underemployment rate, with recreation and general business right behind it. Another important factor, internships. Having even one internship substantially improves a person's chances of using their degree. The study suggests not using your degree is concerning, but not everyone agrees. It's perfectly fine. I have a much broader view of, of how we're supposed to use our learning. A degree is just step one, and it's that kind of being able to study, being able to comprehend things, being able to get along with people. Those are all forms of learning as well. Life coach Jean Nangle sees this in both her business and her personal life. She tells people the world is changing. We are in a time where people are supposed to have different careers throughout their lives. They don't, it's not like years ago where you had one career at a college and then you got the, the watch at the end of 25 years. Those days are over. And now people are really asking themselves, what do I want to do with my life? Nangle advises her clients to lean into what their talents are and ask themselves whom they are here to impact. She says this will lead to more satisfying work and a greater sense of meaning. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. So Dave, plenty to discuss, it seems like today. Uh, but first, let's turn back the clock to 1980. Today is the 44th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice when the U.S. upset the Soviet Union hockey team at the Olympics. Now, what made this uh, such an incredible win? I mean, it was a combination of a lot of things, really. For one, this was a dominant Russian hockey team. They were seated first. They hadn't lost an Olympic game in like a dozen years. They'd won four straight gold medals in this event, dating all the way back to 1964. Hockey was their sport. I mean, this would be like them beating us in American football or something. So Russia breezed through their first five games before playing the U.S. in the semifinals. Meanwhile, the U.S. team, they were young, inexperienced, made up of college players, but they were playing well at the right time. Now, they actually played an exhibition match against the Russians 
Just before the start of the Olympics, Russia blew them out like 10 to 3. But on this day, they got an incredible performance from some key players, including goalie Jim Craig, and they ended up winning the game 4 to 3. Now, I think the game is immortalized even more by legendary announcer Al Michaels' call at the end, where he excitedly says, he's like, do you believe in miracles? He's like, yes. I mean, it's one of the greatest calls ever, because uh, it really was a miracle. All right, so now coming back to present-day uh, present hockey, uh, Toronto's Austin Matthews scored two goals last night to become the quickest to score 50 goals since Mario Lemieux back in 1966. Uh, I want to ask you, how significant is this? I mean, it's, it, well, it's very stunning. I mean, you know, for one thing, Mario Lemieux is largely considered like the second greatest NHL player ever, behind only the great one, Wayne Gretzky, of course. So Matthews now has 51 goals in 54 games, so the team's actually played 55. So they've got 27 games left. That puts him on a pace for 76 goals. I mean, no one has even gotten 70 in more than three decades. 76 would actually be the fifth highest total of all time. So this is quite a pace he's gotten. He's been especially hot of late, nine goals in his last four games. So he's really having quite a season. All right, now let's shift gears to college football. There's been a lot of news this week about expanded 12-team playoffs coming up. But it begs the question of, you know, why they're already looking to expand yet again. The why is probably money. I mean, ESPN is in talks with them to extend their playoff deal for six years for a reported between $7.5 and $8 billion. Now, what's being discussed is adding two more teams to make it 14. I mean, it seems like an unusual number to me. Might as well make it 16 and stop there, hopefully. Of course, we haven't done even the 12-team format yet. It's only been four. In any case, another reported reason is to guarantee the SEC and Big Ten, which really are the two super conferences now, an automatic bid for each. Personally, I don't like this. I mean, if they're really great at football, if they're really great football conferences, they'll get the majority of the seven at-large bids. So it seems silly that they didn't need this like written in stone for them. All right, and finally, uh, let's move on to golf news. Tiger Woods' son Charlie was bidding to enter a PGA tournament uh, as a 15-year-old, but came up, just, came up just short today. Uh, now, if he had qualified, would that have put him ahead of his father? You know, as far as a career timeline, yeah, it actually would have. Tiger actually qualified for his his first PGA event when he was 16. Now today was a pre-qualifier. Had he made the top five there, he would have advanced to Monday's qualifier where the top four advanced to the actual PGA event. Now Tiger Woods' career didn't actually really take off as a 16-year-old. It was when he went to Stanford, won the NCAA championship as a sophomore, and also being the first ever to win three straight U.S. amateur titles that he started to make a name for himself, and now he's maybe the best ever. But you know, nobody at age 15 or 16 is a finished product, but it'll be interesting to see how his career goes from here. Well, Dave, as always, thank you very much for the sports news. Hey, thanks for having me, Don. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Don Ma, Tiffany Meyer. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night.